The reading is taken from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Jesus taken up into heaven. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Colm. Good morning again, everybody. Great to be with you. Let's pray as we start, shall we? Our Father, we thank you for your gift to us of your word. And we praise you for the ascension of your son, Jesus Christ, which we celebrate today. We pray that you would open the scriptures to us this morning, that you would open our eyes to see Jesus and fill us afresh with your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're in a bit of a transitional moment at the moment, aren't we? Tomorrow is May the 17th. I don't know how you're feeling about it. I don't know how confident you're feeling about the next few weeks and months. Tomorrow, we get to hug again. We get to invite friends into our houses for coffee or for dinner. Tomorrow, if you want to, you can have 30 people into your garden for a barbecue. I can't quite picture 30 people in my garden. It feels a bit surreal after the year that we've just had. And I don't know how optimistic you're feeling for the months ahead. 
Uh, I don't know if the Indian variant has got you worried and anxious if you think that we're all going to be back in full lockdown before we know it. Uh, I don't know if you think we've already passed it and actually we're going to be fine now and you're feeling supremely confident as we come out of lockdown. But a year like the last one has generated a lot of anxiety for many of us, hasn't it? The, it's not going to be straight back to the way things were if it ever gets back to the way things were. Uh, we've lost old certainties, re- had new questions raised for us, the, the mental health epidemic, the loneliness that many of us have experienced this year. We've had questions raised. And as a country, I think we're less confident than we used to be. We're more anxious. But I think that the, the backdrop of the last year, what we've all gone through together, I think that it only makes the unique, the distinctive confidence that you and I can have as Christians shine all the brighter. We're, we're seeing a spiritual openness in our country, more than we've ever seen before for decades. And we're seeing people asking questions and questioning things that they'd always held to be true. And today particularly, we remember and we celebrate Jesus' ascension. And however you're feeling about lockdown, however you feel about the shift that will come tomorrow, about the weeks and months ahead, whatever you're facing in your own situation, in Jesus' ascension, we find a real reason to be confident. We find a secure basis for assurance, both for us personally and also for all of us as as Jesus' body in this world, in our mission as Christ's ambassadors, to, to share his love and the hope we have in Jesus with the world that we care about so much. So let's dive into Acts chapter one, shall we? And see why it is that Jesus' ascension can give us confidence in a world that is very uncertain and anxious indeed. I'll read from verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. And he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, the ascension answers the question, where's Jesus? don't know if you've ever been asked that, if you've ever asked that, maybe if you've had young children. They said, where's Jesus now? Uh, And the answer we find in verse 2, he's been taken up to heaven. Jesus is in heaven. Uh, And that might sound obvious to you. That might sound quite mundane to you. But actually, as we think about what it means, I think we'll find that it is groundbreaking. Uh, That Jesus' ascension is a hinge point. It's a hinge point in Jesus' story, and it's a hinge point in the story of all the scriptures themselves. Because theologically speaking, I don't know if you knew this, the ascension and the resurrection are actually the same thing. So Jesus, they're two parts of the same movement. Jesus' work on earth is finished. His work from heaven now begins. He's finished what he came to do. He's died, he's defeated death, he's washed away our sins, he's triumphed over the cross. And now he rises from the dead. But once he's raised, he spends 40 days, we read in verse 3, appearing to his disciples at many times and places. Uh, We read about that at the end of the Gospels on the Emmaus Road, having a barbecue on the beach, in the upper room to Thomas, all those appearances. But after he rises from the dead... His ascension isn't postponed for those 40 days while he's appearing to his disciples. After each appearance that we read about at the end of the Gospels, where does Jesus, Jesus disappears, we read, but where does he go in between those appearances? 
He's not hiding out in the pyramids or the Grand Canyon or sunbathing on a beach in Hawaii in between those appearances to the disciples over 40 days. He's already conquered death. He's already triumphed. He's already in his resurrection body. He's already the first fruits of the new creation. From the moment that he rises from the dead, Jesus is the risen and ascended Lord. And so what we talk about as the ascension that we just had read for us in Acts 1 to 11 is the final resurrection appearance of Jesus. And he makes it a bit more dramatic to help the disciples understand they're not going to see him again like this until he comes again at the end of all things. And so he rises vertically into heaven until a cloud hides him from their sight. There's a bit more drama because he's not going to appear to them like this again. It's the last one. But he's already been ascended for the last 40 days, ever since his resurrection. They're one and the same thing. And we, we see that throughout the New Testament. We'll go through a quick Bible study of the, what it is that Jesus' ascension has done. Because Jesus' ascension is best understood as his coronation. That's what the imagery is as he ascends vertically as the clouds cover him. It's not about a physical movement. It's not as if Jesus was down here on earth. Now he's ascended, so he's flying somewhere the other side of the Milky Way in his nighty and his sandals. And if we sent a spaceship up, we'd be able to see him and he'd wave to us. That's not the picture. It's not a physical shift. It's a relational shift. Jesus, who was the heir of all things, is now crowned king and seated on his throne. So one chapter later in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, that's what Peter tells to the crowd. He says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Notice that. God has made Jesus Lord. He's always been God, but now something's changed. He's become Lord. Paul explains it in a bit more detail. First in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says that Jesus was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. He's always been the Son of God, but by his resurrection, he's now been appointed Son in power. We get it unpacked even more in Ephesians chapter 1 from verse 20, which we read, When God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything. By his resurrection and ascension, Jesus Christ has been appointed the head over everything. That's what it means for him to be in heaven. It means that he's on the throne. And that's why in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen has his vision of Jesus, Stephen is able to say, uh, he looks up to heaven, he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God and says, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Uh, and the right hand is the position of power and authority. It's where we get our phrase, your right hand man, the person that um, supports you, the person to whom you've delegated all your responsibility. That's at the right hand of the monarch is where you put the prime minister or the chancellor or the person who rules the country for them. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father because he has now been made Lord. He's taken up his throne. And that's the imagery of the cloud in verse 9. Uh, after he said this, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. It's not, just a it's not just a description of something that happened. It's got huge significance that the disciples, because they were Jews, would have understood. It's pointing back to the vision that Daniel had in Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel's vision, in Daniel chapter 7, he saw, uh, he saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. 
He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And this is what Jesus was referring back to at his trial in Mark 14. Jesus, when he's being interviewed by the high priest, he says, I am the Son of Man, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The picture from Daniel chapter 7. And we often get this the wrong way around because the picture in Daniel chapter 7 is not Jesus' second coming, coming from heaven to earth on the clouds. It's a picture of a human being going from earth to heaven on the clouds. He's coming to the throne, coming to the Father. So the picture is not Jesus' return at the end of all time. The picture is Jesus' ascension. That's what Jesus is talking about in Mark 14, why he says, you will see it. It's not the end of the world. It's what would happen just a few weeks later at Jesus' ascension. So you could say that Jesus was actually crucified for talking about his ascension, talking about the moment where he would be given all authority and dominion and power, where Jesus would be revealed to be the one that Daniel saw in his vision, where Jesus would take up his rightful place as king over the universe. That's what the resurrection and the ascension are all about. It's like any good story, really. I I love war movies. I love medieval war movies. And basically, the plot is the same in any war movie. There's a problem. There's an enemy. And the king's got to take his army. And he goes and he has to defeat the enemy in a big battle. And then when he's won the battle, he'll go back to his castle. He'll sit on his throne. He'll put the crown on his head. The end credits will play. And you'll know that the whole land is going to have a wonderful time. They're going to enjoy peace and prosperity because the king's won the battle. And now he's sitting on his throne. Everything's going to be okay. My friends, that is the ascension. The ascension means, where's Jesus? Well, he's in heaven. It means that Jesus, the king, is on the throne. You can breathe out. It's okay. The king is on the throne. It's good news for you and for me. It's good news for us as people. Nothing can shake him. Nothing can phase him. Coronavirus doesn't scare him. The lockdown, the economic shocks, they don't scare him. He's in control. Nothing that you or I can face is too big for him. The king is on the throne. And at the end of time, he's going to return. That's what we read in verses 10 and 11. This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go. So whatever we face now, whatever happens next week, however badly things go in our lives this year, the story ends well. We know how it ends because the king is coming back to make all that is wrong right, to wipe away every tear from our eyes, to restore his kingdom perfectly. We can breathe out. The king is on the throne. That is the ascension. But it raises a question for us. Because if the king's on the throne, if he's won the battle, he's defeated death on the cross, he's reconciled us to God, he's reigning over all things, why doesn't he just come back now? Why can't we go straight there now? Why this gap? Why do we have to have coronavirus and stuff like that in the meantime when Jesus could just return and sort it all out right now? Why do we have to wait when the world's in such a mess? And what are we meant to do in this waiting period? Why do we have this long gap? And that's what Jesus is trying to explain to his disciples in the rest of the passage. So we see that he meets with them several times over these 40 days. And from verse 4, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. 
So he's pointing them back to all the teaching he's given them, particularly, I think, here, it's the farewell discourse in John's gospel. And and just to summarize the things that he's saying, I'll read you some verses from, from John. He told them, I will be with you only a little longer, and where I'm going, you cannot come. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and then I'll come back and take you to be with me. But I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. And when the advocate comes, he will testify about me, and you also must testify. That's the kind of thing he's referring back to in verse 4. And then he goes on to repeat it. Verse 5, John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. All that Jesus has been teaching them brings us to the start of the book of Acts, which is all about the witness of Jesus' church in the power of his Holy Spirit. Verse 8 is often called the contents page of the book of Acts. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We receive his Spirit, and then we're sent as his witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's what happens throughout the book. Jesus has finished his earthly work. He's destroyed sin on the cross. But now reigning from heaven... He works through you and me. And he sent us his spirit to empower us to be part of his mission to the whole world. My friends, why hasn't Jesus returned yet? Why do we have the gap? Jesus hasn't come back yet because he's waiting for the full number of his children to come home. His patience means salvation, we read in the scriptures. Jesus is waiting for the gospel to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Jesus is waiting for every last one of his children to come back and find their home in him. And so we are sent as his witnesses. He gives us his spirit and sends us to continue his work, to take the good news that the king is reigning to everyone that we might meet so that everyone might come and find life and hope in Jesus, and he will come again to bring us all into his kingdom. So that's why we have the gap. That's why he sent us his spirit. The spirit is the spirit of mission. And in the here and now, while we wait for his return, we get to be his witnesses. We get to go to a world that is anxious, a world that's uncertain and grieving and confused. And we get to tell them that in Jesus there is always hope. That in Jesus, death is not the end. That in Jesus, we don't have to be trapped by our mistakes. That our faults and our failures, they are not the last word. That in Jesus, there's grace for our guilt. There's healing for our shame. There's always forgiveness. There's always hope. Because the king is on the throne. And his arms are open wide. That is why he has not yet come back. We often joke, don't we, that in heaven there are only two things we won't be able to do. We won't be able to sin, thank goodness, and we won't be able to witness because all of God's children will have come home. In the meantime, that's what we're here to do, to proclaim the good news that the king is on the throne. Uh, And the truth is that if we only want to be saved and sanctified and satisfied, then the Lord's task has no need of us. But there is a job to do in the meantime. Uh, And the, the challenge that confronts us this morning is, are we willing just to sit on our sofas and binge Netflix while thousands die without knowledge of the God who loved them so much that he gave his life to save them? 
And he's looking from heaven and saying, who can I send? He's looking for the one who will say, here am I, send me. Will that be us this morning? The king is on the throne. And he sent us his spirit to be his witnesses. Uh, My friends, I think that is a real reason for us to be confident as we look to the future. You and I, we can be confident in our faith, in your walk with God. It does not depend on how good a Christian you've been this week. It doesn't depend on whether you've had your quiet time, how much you've prayed, how nice you've been to your husband or your wife. It depends on him. His work is finished. He's done what he came to do. We can be confident as we face him because we are saved by the blood of the Lamb. And we can be confident in our future. Whatever may happen with the Indian variant, whatever happens with lockdown, whatever happens with your job, the king is on the throne and he is coming back one day to put all things right. We can have confidence in him, whatever may come in the next few days. And that's good news for me at the moment. Just earlier this week, uh, I was on a walk and I was getting stressed about things I had to do at work. It felt there were lots of square pegs trying to go into round holes and I was banging them, but they wouldn't go in and I didn't know what to do. And obviously we're at this transitional point and I'm wondering, I wonder where our next job's going to be. I wonder which church we're going to go to. And I just felt the Lord break into my thoughts and just say so clearly, Tom, you're not the king. I'm the king and I'm on the throne. Breathe. Um, and that's what I did. I, I, I was able to breathe and say, thank you, Lord, you're in control. I give you that situation. I give you that person. I give you that decision. It's yours. You sort it. Um, I'll wait and I'll do what you say. That's fine. It's good news. He's the king, not us. And he's on the throne. But we, it's not just confidence for us. He doesn't just save us for our own benefit. We can be confident too in the task that he's given us. Because he sent us his spirit for the salvation of the world. And that means that you, right now, have everything that you need for the transformation of your family. For the transformation of your neighbours, of your street, of your workplace, of your circle of friends. You have the spirit of the living God. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And he is living within you to use you as his witness, as his ambassador with the people that he loves even more than you do. We get to go and we get to offer peace for the anxious in Jesus' name. Hope for the despondent in Jesus' name. Grace for the guilty in Jesus' name. There is no greater privilege that I've ever discovered in my life than being able to be the person who introduces someone that I love to Jesus and see their lives transformed as they find the purpose for their life, the love that will never let them go. Transformation as they encounter Jesus by his Spirit. One of the things I was quite uh, stressed about earlier in the week is that the BBC are coming to our church to film our service next Sunday morning. We're going to be on BBC One at 10.30. And there's quite a lot of hoops to jump through to get that sorted. Uh, And and one of the people I'm going to be interviewing in that service, I'm going to interview a friend who came to faith at our church recently. Uh, And I'll just tell you his story briefly because it's it's a wonderful example of this. He'd been in prison for seven years. And he came out of prison and he thought, I've got to make up for lost time. And so he was partying and taking loads of drugs um, and trying to make the most of his 20s that he'd lost in prison. And he said, underneath it all, I'd never felt more miserable or alone. And he was lying to his family and friends about the drugs and causing pain to everyone around him, just trying to make up for lost time. 
And he woke up one morning and he just had this thought, which was, I'm, I have to go to church. I have to go to church. And we know now with hindsight, it was the Holy Spirit put that thought in his heart. And so he turned up at our evening service in the summer. Um, and I met him on the door and said hi and got a little bit of his story. And then he sat down. And the, in, the, his, in the sermon, he, he said it was like the preacher was speaking directly to me. They were saying that there are people here who've messed up, but God can still meet you and can still turn your life around. So he went forward for prayer because he's like, yeah, I need that. And I prayed with him. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he gave his life to Jesus, signed up to be baptized the next week. He's now at Bible college. He's an evangelist. He's on the streets every day telling people about the transformation Jesus makes. And he, he said to me on the phone this week, Tom, I've never been been happier. It's like my eyes have been opened. My life couldn't be more different. Jesus has saved my life. That's the difference that the Holy Spirit makes. That is the business that we as the church are in. Because the King is on the throne and he sent us with his spirit to offer his love for the transformation of the lives of this world that so needs him. The ascension is Jesus' coronation. His work is finished, but that means that ours has just begun. So can I invite you to stand and we're going to pray together. If you're at home, you might like to stand as well. And we're just going to spend a couple of minutes doing exactly what Jesus tells us to expect in Acts chapter 1. We're going to pray for his spirit to fill us. So let's pray together. Come, Holy Spirit. on each one of us in this building, at home, in our kitchens and our lounges. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill us afresh, we pray. We need you so much. And we're just going to wait for a minute or two now. If you haven't done this before, we're just allowing God, giving him the space to meet us and to fill us.